Welcome to the uh, 19th special podcast with Samantha Sweden. Today, um, it's just going to be Ryan McCulloch and myself. He's my special guest talking about Start With Why and passion for, for having your why. And I think he's my perfect guest uh, for today. Uh, we're on chapters. We kind of went over chapter six a little bit, but I wanted to revisit chapter six because such a large chapter talking about so much. And we'll go into seven and maybe get to eight, but we're going to start with um, the story about the stonemasons, and there's a story about uh, two stonemasons, and they're building a cathedral, and you go up and talk to one stonemason, and he says, you say, how do you like your job, and the stonemason says, I like my job, I uh, lift heavy stuff, stones all day, but it pays my bills, and um, I'm not sure if this cathedral will ever get, get finished by the time I die, but it's a job and it pays my bills. And you go up to the second guy and the second guy says, I'm building a cathedral. And yeah, I left heavy stuff all day. Yes, it pays my bills, but I'm building a cathedral. It may not get done by the time I, I die, but I'm building a cathedral. So the difference between those two guys is one understands why he's doing it. The other guy doesn't have a why. He's just there for a job. So passion is in the limbic brain, right? It's that limbic feeling that you can't really like say too much about. You can't like sit there and go, oh, it's I describe it kind of like this. And you're trying to always pull those words because it's the limbic brain. It doesn't really have words to describe sometimes when you're feeling passionate about something. You have to really think about it. So my question is to you, you just came back from detailing Air Force One. Props to you. You're <laughs> how many, one of like 30 people that got picked to go to Seattle to do Air yeah, Force I think 30. Kennedy, who, Kennedy, Nixon, and who else? Ford? No, um, Eisenhower. Eisenhower, that's right. But this is the one Jackie Onassis made sure was painted her color scheme that she wanted, right? Jackie Kennedy. Yes. So it's got that nice, beautiful blue and girl colors, I call it. Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's a, so tell me magnificent about magnificent plane. Yeah. Oh, so it was. I, why'd you do that? That was, that's been one of my goals for the last three years. Um, that's, that's been something that's kind of been in the back of my head, you know? And I think when I first joined, or I first went through the detail and success training, you have a certain perspective on the group, like, oh, I'm going to detail Air Force One. Like, oh man, that's going to be crazy. And the longer you stay in it, the more your your why changes, you know, the more you you get involved and it becomes like something you want to be a part of. It's an honor. It's not just for clout, you know, it's something that you can be proud of. Right. And you know, I, tell me, describe to me the feeling that you had when you walked into the museum and saw it for the first time with your own eyes. Um, 
the, the feeling happened more than just the first time i look up like from polishing the top of it and just look up and be like oh my gosh dude little old me from redding california is up here detailing air force one right now you know uh it was just it was insane it, you just look up and you can't believe you're touching that type of history you know and you're just how many people can say that they've done that not a lot not a lot yeah. a lot of repeat guys that go up right yeah out of 20 years because it was the 20th anniversary so out of 20 years 20 people like i know they used to have a bigger group of like 60 or whatever but at the same time there's a lot of repeat guys that go up and 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 do it because the fact of it takes a lot of muscle and experience to do these planes and so they use these guys as as leads and all that kind of stuff so it takes a lot of a lot of people to do it but at the same time like not a lot of people like what do you think like less than 200 people right? yeah probably somewhere around there and that's just that's awesome <laughs> yeah it's it, it's definitely something that uh i'm proud of that i got to be a part of you know i get to tell my kids like i was telling my son and he didn't quite understand a president so i had to break it down to him like you know kings and he's like yeah dad you're gonna do our king's plane okay. yeah something like that man even cooler president <laughs> So it's just, it was, it was a cool experience all around, you know, just being up there and seeing how big that those aircraft are. Like there was one section where I was sitting there polishing the top of Air Force One the first time, first day I was up there and I was thinking I was killing it. And I'm like, man, and I'm looking back towards the tail and I'm like, dude, I've done about a third of this thing. Like I'm knocking this thing out. And then I turned my head the other way. There was about a sixth of it left like there was so much like i've only or i only did a sixth of it there was so much left i was like oh this is much bigger than those rvs i've been doing <laughs> just insane how big they are and then you figure you know so it kind of goes into that whole bonding because you have a common passion with you know 20 to 30 other people up there <laughs> and that common passion kind of bonds you guys when you're there yeah yeah, a stonemason doesn't matter. Like the stonemason didn't matter if you're the guy putting in the stained glass windows, or you're the guy doing the, you know, chipping out the stones and doing or the architect or anything. It was a group of people with one common passion that comes together, that does makes results that's bigger than the whole, right? Yeah, and that's one of the coolest parts, and especially being there on the 20th anniversary, you know, they made it more of like an industry event, and it really, like being young in the detailing industry, it really opens your eyes to like, like who these people are, you know, like, oh, that's, that's the rep from Griots, oh, that's the people, you know, from Reflection Artists, oh, like, and you just get to put a face to these people, and then you also get to work with just amazing professionals that have so much things in common with you and you just relate on a different level 
and just learn so much. That's awesome. It was a really great experience. So when you're in your job, let's say how many employees, you just have one or two employees now? Just one. Just one. How do you feel like your, your employees' why is now? Just being one-on-one at your house, changing shop locations. Oh, that, I feel like it's changed a lot. I feel like um, he understands the why. We actually had this conversation. We've had this conversation like twice in the last two weeks. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we have. We've had some growing pains and, you know, still some learning to do and stuff. But like he sees the vision. He sees he understands the why behind everything. Me and him communicate so much better. Like, that's my guy. Like, that's that's my partner. You know what I mean? Like, that's my guy that I detail with. Like. I talk to my therapist, like, you know, <laughs> these, that's my guy. And he understands his why he understands my why on why I'm doing it and what I want to do. Like I have a, you know, I have a beautiful family. I want to support and take care of and enjoy what I do and be passionate. And he has the same thing. And so we're, we're really vibing right now and, and coming into one with that. And especially coming back from Air Force One. I bet. That's awesome. So um, there's a story. Have you ever heard of the Wright Brothers versus Langley? Yeah. Okay. So it's funny because I mentioned it in the last the last one because we kind of went over a little bit about Langley. So I know um, Pete Langley, who is a descendant of Samuel Langley. In fact, his son is named Sam Langley after his great great grandfather, Samuel Langley. Which also, what people don't know, and they should be recognized that Samuel Langley did eventually fly an aircraft off the boat. Like in this book. Simon doesn't re understand the whole totality of um, what Samuel Langley accomplished because it hasn't really been put down a lot. There's what they call the USS Langley, which is named after Samuel Langley. So I just want to acknowledge the Langleys because it doesn't get acknowledged and start with why. They did eventually launch from an air from a boat with the whole idea. He just didn't do it before the Wright brothers. So he didn't just quit like Simon says. He did not quit. He still did it. And he launched from a boat, um, the first ever aircraft to launch from a boat, right? Because that's what he was trying to do. Nonetheless, so we'll move on with that. Um, so Samuel Langley was all about, uh, you know, his the story that is put out he was like an astronomer very well educated um he had he was like the secretary of the smithsonian right so this guy's like in the who's who back in the day in the 1900s of the u.s so that's that's a huge thing right it's like um and he got fifty thousand dollars to fund this whole airplane thing 
Well, he was doing it more from, oh, notoriety and all this kind of stuff. And he didn't have his, he knew aeronautics a little bit, but he wasn't really, didn't have as much passion. His why was all about like getting it done. He didn't have the why of like, oh, I'm going to, it can change the world and it can make everybody's lives better. He, he was coming from it from a total scientific point of view very logical um more of notoriety and this is going to make me rich and type thing um his family states it a, a different way but um we'll go with the book right now um so uh, and and he wanted to be it was all about success right and that's how it was perceived so and and just a side note, think about, I know their family and direct descendants of the Langley. So, um, and when Pete tells that story, he told me that story, 1995, because uh, Pete Langley is a very um, well-known, he works on boats, which is kind of funny. Um, he's a molder. He owns uh, Port Townsend Foundry up in Port Townsend, Washington. So he makes molds um, for boats. So if you have something going on with your boat and you need to replace something um, that's metal, you go to Pete and you say, hey, I have this piece. I can't find it anywhere. My boat is too old. Pete will actually make the mold and then replace your part. And he makes uh, very many specialized parts and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless... Um, he told me that story like 1995. It's hilarious that, that, you know, 25 some years later, almost it's coming back to full circle that I'm doing this book and it has this whole story about his great, great grandfather or whatever. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but I guess to come Fiction. back, what was that? Fictional story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. Um, so anyhow, the USS Langley's out there, and I just want to acknowledge the Langley family for what uh, Samuel Langley did do for the naval um, portions of the United States government. Anyway, so the Wright brothers, we'll go to the Wright brothers. Um, Orville Wright and his brother, um, they had a passion. They had like a dream, right? They had the why... They didn't have a lot of money. They ran a bicycle shop, but that was their passion. They wanted to change everybody's life. They were doing it for an output other than themselves. They were putting out the outputs into the community. So then they had the whole community behind them and everybody was helping them out and all this kind of stuff. Whereas Langley had all these scientific guys. So you think that they would have all this money and scientific stuff and they would have got it done, right? Well, you know, you fast forward, you know, and everybody's failing and they're, and, um, you know, he had the New York Times following him around, whereas the Wright brothers had nobody. And then you fast forward to like December uh, 17th of 1903, and they took a 59 second flight for 120 seconds. I mean, for 120 feet. So they had an altitude of 120 feet, flew for 59 seconds at a pace of a jog. And it changed the world, right? So 
and they had taken five parts. So the Wright brothers just take five pieces of every part with them. And the reason why is they knew that they would at least fail five times. They would have to replace parts at least five times before they had to go home for supper. So can you imagine packing out like all in 1903, dude, like, and those little teeny tiny Ford T model T's, you know, like packing out all this stuff for this plane. Again, <laughs> and they had five parts of each to replace because they knew they were gonna fail five times before they had to go home for supper. We're How soft. Yes. <laughs> we are so soft. <laughs> so um, I guess at the end of the day. You know, you had uh, fame and wealth is what it's portrayed as all what Sam Langley wanted and versus belief and inspiration of what um, the Wright brothers wanted. So um, it also goes into dream teams, right? So when you put a dream team together, what does that usually mean? It usually means... For me, it means something completely different. We'll go into that in a second. But when you say dream team in a professional world, like all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, I need to get this guy and he's going to cost a lot of money, but he's a good thinker. And I need this guy from over here and I need this guy. But really your dream team is already who you have employed. That's your true dream team, not the people that you have to pay a lot of money to because they don't have why. Once you're paying them like, all that money to have great ideas. What are they? <clears throat> they don't know your why, but your employees already working for you know your why. They know why you're doing something, how it's going to happen, why it's going to happen. Um, let's see. So it's really about inspiring a group that's bigger than themselves, and that's why. Dream teams don't always work. They do work sometimes when you have certain situations and probably some technical world and other these other things. But, um, you know, when you put people together with like-minded beliefs and core values, then a lot can be accomplished for free, right? You can all get together for free and accomplish so many things with like-minded values and core beliefs. So, um, yeah. Can you really hear that chainsaw in the background? <laughs> uh, I From thought the... it was a, I thought it was a TV muffling next door. Pretty sure someone's cutting down a tree next door. I'm, I'm in the city. So, um, you need all the trees you can get yeah someone just oh shoot um let's see so the role of a leader they say is not to come up with all the great ideas the role of the leader is to create an environment in which great ideas happen right so creating those environments and letting each other lead there's times to lead and time to follow, right? And letting each other lead and follow doesn't mean you're any less. It just means that you're you're a better team member at the end of the day. Because 
when you're at Air Force One, did you feel like you needed to lead at all at any portion of the time, or did you feel like you were leading by just doing? Um, I feel like at Air Force One, the first day, I was kind of like a deer in the headlights, like just trying to stay busy and like, hey, what should I do? And then I realized I was overcomplicating things. Yeah. And you kind of, you know what to do, you know? And so you, you follow lead, but you also lead from behind and, you know, you make those decisions and, and you make those calls. Like, that's why we're there, yeah. you know, um, as far as like doing stuff we shouldn't have. No, I definitely didn't feel like I needed to lead. Like there was guys much more knowledgeable and have experience with, with yeah. those aircraft, yeah. you know, but and that wasn't an issue for me, but I, I was very curious on how it was going to work out having 35 business owners up there, you know, that are used to leading. And if you ask me, I think it went really well. Well, yeah. Like, type A personalities. Yeah, it went really good. Like people didn't really have issues following a leader, you know, from what I experienced, like it all went very smoothly and it was a very good group. That's awesome. Um, Steve Jobs, dude, I, he was a kind of, that guy was kind of loopy, right? A little bit on certain ways of being. Not loopy, I should say. He just had a certain way of being that some people did not enjoy. Yes. But at the same time, his ideas of how business worked was right on, right? He created an environment. He never had an idea. The, the guy was not a computer person. He was an inspirational leader. That's all he was, was like an amazing inspirational leader. And he created environments where people could create whatever they wanted in the industry. So Steve Jobs like had ideas like, hey, there's an MP3 player and uh why can't we make something better? Right? So was it really an idea of Apple to have the MP3 player? No, I had one of the first ones. And it was like this small little round thing and it hold like 50 songs. And then the Apple iPod came out and I got that because it held more music. And iTunes was there and I could download all my music and pick the songs I wanted on my iPod. It was a little bit user-friendly, right? Did the other one sound a little bit better through my headset? Yeah, actually it did when you think about it, right? But then the iPod got better and all that. But nonetheless, his idea was an original. He simply made it better. His innovation was about making it better, just like the computer. There was already computers out there in the world they literally wanted to make it better. They wanted you to be able to sit at home with a computer and make it better, right? Um, so innovation, inspiration, and creativity comes from good leaders that inspire the room. Rather than trying to create a bunch of followers, they want a good leader will create a room full of leaders that know how to follow because that's the difference um and then that also allows that room full of people to understand why 
because it allows them to have that passion and forethought of like, hey, I have this idea. Well, okay, well, that person's the leader now, right? It automatically shifts when you have great passion and, and ideas. And that person's like a lead on something because of the fact they have a great idea and passion for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like not what you do, it's why you do it. And that's where that's where big business, right? So there's so many like Colgate has 30 some odd like toothpaste. <laughs> let, let me pick out of the have you gone to the toothpaste aisle lately? And like yeah, or CVS pharmacy or wherever. Target. Target. Oh my gosh, right? It it's like it's kind of like the chip aisle. Like all of a sudden there's tooth, there's a whole aisle for toothpaste. I'm like, what is going on in the world that you need this much toothpaste? It's well, they have they're struggling to make it a better toothpaste instead of why they want the toothpaste better, right? Why do you want you want to be healthy? You want your teeth to be healthy. I don't need like this cool mint flavor that's got sparkles in it and red cinnamon flavor. I want my teeth to be clean and not taste like crap. Yeah. So um, why versus what, right? So you have 30 toothpaste from Colgate, Crest and all that. When really, how many dentists actually, when you go to your dentist, they'll pick like one from each like, oh, if you do this one, at who, what company do you use? Oh, I use Crest. Then use this one from Crest. I use Colgate. Use this one toothpaste from Colgate. There's only one out of that whole group of 30 that an actual dentist will recommend, which cracks me up. All and right. they probably all have similar formulas. Oh, yeah. They're all about. And yeah. when you realize, like, so when you realize how toothpaste came about in the u.s it's even a better story it was all a marketing thing right so charles duhigg writes this book about habits which is a a pre-book to atomic habits which the atomic habits guy gives charles duhigg all this like it's like he picks up where this guy left off and um it talks about the marketing of the toothpaste in the like, what is it, 30, 40, 50, somewhere around there. And how the government's like, oh my God. And the reason why it came up is they were getting all these enlistments from G from guys going into the army and they had rotten teeth. So it was like this huge epidemic in America that no one was brushing their teeth. They didn't have good teeth. So well, we have this whole baking soda thing. Why isn't people, why aren't people brushing their teeth? Because it's with baking soda and something else. It was back in the day, right? So they kept trying to get this marketing guy to do it. And really what it came down is to the limbic brain. You can't explain it, right? So his whole thing about making your teeth, if you go back, it's about a feeling you have when you brush your teeth of that nice smooth you take your tongue and you wipe it on your teeth and it's smooth and your brush feel you know it feels so good to have your teeth clean it's a feeling so that's marketing guy went on a feeling and that's how all of a sudden people start brushing their teeth again 
America is from a feeling, the Olympic marketing system of a feeling that all of a sudden came about, right? So when you're trying to do something, why you're doing something, it has to, you have to touch somebody in a feeling way. Like you have to figure out like why they're getting their car detailed. What is their why? We always talk about that, right? What's their, why are they even here? Why are they even coming to you to get a service? Because it's a luxury item. So why? And then you have to go, okay, I need to talk to them about their why, you know? It's all a feeling. All right, so um, SWA is another thing, Southwest Airlines, right? 1971. They, uh, they were going to have to sell a plane because they weren't making enough money. So the 10-minute turnaround came about. So smaller planes in 1971, right? Um, but they could either sell the plane and do a 10-minute turnaround so they can make enough money, keep their employees employed, keep you know planes going from here to there. And then it became a whole thing for Southwest. Right now the planes are bigger and it takes them like 25 to 35 minutes, right? But it was funny, like Simon Selnick had done all the math. He said it would be, if they even put on 10 minutes to their turnaround time in one year, just for every plane, it would have something about, he had like 1800 extra planes would have to be made in their system if they put on 10 more minutes to every turnaround time. Jeez. Isn't that crazy? So if you think about it, they'd have to have 1,800 extra flights or minutes or something. Um, oh, my friend just texted me her, her uh, this is off subject, but she's like, okay, so my friend has all these little things around her house that clean the floor. All these robots and they're named after the series Wally. So Wally goes and vacuums the whole house and Eva mops the kitchen. And she texted me, she's like, Eva is stuck somewhere. Just put her back on the charging station. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's chapter six, because I didn't really go over a whole bunch. Well, it's not all about six, but do you have any comments about all that kind of stuff that I, we just talked about? Um, no. No? no. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I'm just going to talk to talk. I okay. do, and, and I'm just going to ramble. So, no. <laughs> So um, the next one is, is about trust. So it goes into chapter six evolves eventually into this whole trust scenario. And um, it's about the definition of trust. And it goes into this um, bank that, it, you know, were, survived all these wars and all this kind of stuff back in the day and was taken down by this one guy who was a traitor in the 80s or 90s and just made some bad trades and 
and literally lost the whole bank out of like you know i don't know how long it was in business probably like over 70 years and this bank goes out and it was a trusted bank and i've never even heard of it it was called bearings bank and this guy made some horrible trades and the bank is now gone right but it's interesting because it was originated in Europe. And when they talked to this guy, well, how did you, how did you get all your superiors to, to let you make all these super risky trades? So I'm my own supervisor. <laughs> and then, and he's all, but what about in whatever this branch in Europe, Paris, whatever. And they're like, well, they kind of have a culture that no one really speaks up and you don't really tattle on each other you just kind of do your thing so bearings went from about being about trust in all these you know world war one world war two what have you and and it doesn't matter even the bombings can't take us out right of of europe and a traitor took him out in the 80s or 90s that's crazy <laughs> right because they just allowed someone too much power, not any checks and balances. Like you can have, you can have immediate trust just because you, perfect example is your employee. Do you still check every vehicle, Ryan, before it goes out? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I'm, I'm just an asshole, but yeah, I do. But are you really, or are you... <laughs> checks and balances checks and balances but i always find stuff too so that's why i still do all right so your your valuation is a little bit different than his valuation so you're not exactly on the same page on the final destination and that's okay no. that's okay he'll get there eventually right a little bit more communication in that field and he'll get there so the point is you have a checks and balances system. The government has three parts of the government, right? For checks and balances. And a bank had zero checks and balances on making trades. And this trader guy just ruined a whole banking system that had been around for years and in multiple countries by doing too risky a trade. So it's not that the employees aren't trusted with each other. You trust your employee, but you still check him. You still back him. And you still ask him. I've heard you talk about it. Hey, check me to make sure if you see anything. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, I do have him check me too, though. Whenever I get done with something, you know, hey, go check that car out and make sure I didn't miss anything. Or, hey, go QC that for me, you know? So it's it's a different eye. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if you trust each other, um, you're allowed to take more risks, but you have to have a checks and balances to take that risk. You have to have someone holding you up at the end of the day, somebody supporting you. It's like, you don't want to just go get into a shop and spend $3,000 a month in rent and you don't have any clientele, right? Because you're going to end up paying 4,000 with everything that's going on with yourself, insurances, all that kind of stuff, right? Maybe more than that. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you got to have a support system. Support systems are what make it 
easy for you to do things in life. You can take risks and and go, oh, you know what? And you moved your shop to a different location. So that way you can take more risk, right? So you yeah. hey, I'm going to raise my prices or do whatever you're going to do. <clears throat> that risk, because you've now supported yourself by making um, six months of whatever, and you have that in the bank. And then, but you've created your own support system, your own safety net, right? Just like the trapeze artist. You can't make a new show as a trapeze artist if you don't have a safety net. Someone's going to die. Everybody fails the first time, right? No one's ever perfect. Yeah. <laughs> what she mentions trapeze artists, right? You can't have a good show without having a safety net. These guys go put on shows. How are they going to learn these amazing flips in the air and, <clears throat> and catch right on if you don't have a safety net? I mean... People are going to die, right? One and done. <laughs> yeah, one and done. Not the show I want to take my kids to. No. But at the end of the day, you're going to have more risk involved, more personal risk if you have that safety net, if you have that person supporting you. For you, your wife is a huge support, so you have that safety net. She will, she will like support you, and love you through it and talk with you about it and you guys iron things out and she's your support your checks and balances and support system with a, the business portion of it right yeah and so that's huge um and she knows your why and she has that why with you and you got to have the how with the why right but so you have uh Risk versus, I wrote this down, risk versus trust and how they work together. Uh, and to, you can't have one without the other. You got to have risk and trust. It's not risk versus trust. It should be risk equals trust, which equals risk, right? right. It's, it's a combination of that that allows you to propel yourself further. Um, let's see. Oh, um, did you get to the part where it talked about General Jumper and Captain Robinson? No, okay. no, I hadn't got there. Okay, <laughs> what time is it? It's uh, yeah, so General Jumper flying in a plane they're doing a simulation plane and um you have captain robinson and she's got a scope and she's looking down saying you have uh whatever's going on 200 whatever yards or 200 miles away or whatever it's aeronautical stuff i'm not a pilot dude so i don't know that kind of stuff so nonetheless they're doing their whole talk about stuff and general jumper just decided that he wasn't going to be a team player and started only listening to himself. And he could only see what he could see in his horizon. He could not see everything that Captain Johnson was telling him. Like, hey, dude, you, you have this, you have X, Y, Z, you need to shoot. Or you need to do, you need to bank left. And he didn't bank left. And he got shot down in the simulator. And he goes and he 
She's like, what are you doing? All puffy chest in the room with her. And she's like, you need to look at the replay. I told you this is what you have coming down. You didn't listen. You rejected that. You rejected all that our teammates, you know, um, saying that they saw it, but you're not seeing it. And that's the whole trust thing, right? For some reason, he went out of the trust scenario. He was not in the trust circle for that day. And he just kind of went off on his own little world. But because he was in that scenario, he realized that he was not being in the trust circle, right? And you've got to depend on each other, especially in the military for your life. And um, and this is like, this is the person, like the Joint Chiefs would say, if anyone is having a mission, they want Captain Johnson to be their backup person because she was so concise with everything and on everything and like her whole thing is I want to create a clear path for success for every person whether it's beneath me or above me and I want to teach I mean she was an instructor all these things all these accolades and you got this one guy General Jumper giving her a bunch of crap now General Jumper went on and was like the biggest general in the I don't know if this was Navy or Air Force but was one of the joint chief dudes right and she went on to be a general, but it just talks about, um, he really goes into how Lloyd Robinson had the why, like she knew why she was in the armed forces. She knew it was a bigger picture than herself. And being in that bigger picture, was not all about her. It was not all about like what I can get out of this and how can I get promoted? It was more of if I'm not doing this, how can I allow my fellow person to still be alive? This is a life or death situation and I need to teach them how to be better and how can I leave it better off than it was before? So in that just goes back into a common, a common set of values and beliefs where a passion comes from a bigger part of, of having to make something better. All part of that limbic brain that you can't explain, right? Um, and it goes into, and that kind of segues into celebrity versus some like a friend, right? So if you have a celebrity that's saying, "Oh, dude, I just got this golf club and it's the max, it's rad," you know, and he's like on this commercial and he's like, "This is the greatest golf club," but you're at you're playing golf with your buddy and your buddy's like, "I got that golf club. It's worse." It's like the worst golf club I've ever had. That thing is like, was not worth the money. Are you going to go out and buy that, that golf club? No. No. Would I'm you, not. No. Yeah. But would you have bought the golf club if Tiger Woods was on <clears throat> the best one before you talked to your buddy? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then you talked to your buddy and says it was horrible. Would you then go back and like redo your research? Be like, oh my God. My buddy says it's bad. He actually has it. You know? Yeah. I have Swiss tracks flooring and hex lights. Yeah. I would have definitely had conversations first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Holy cow. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, we won't even. I don't understand the reason for that. Yeah. I would never put tracks flooring down on my shop. I got it right now. Nightmare. It's okay. it's okay. I know. 
It looks pretty. It looks pretty. When it's clean. When it's clean. Yeah. You don't have to take it all up or have a floor drain underneath exactly. And then, yeah. I just go around it. I'll mop my black section and then the white one, I just go around with magic eraser. Just, it's just a square. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I got it dialed. Trex flooring. Well, when you purchase it, then you got to kind of use it, right? You're like, I might as well use it. I bought it. Oh, yeah. And since I transitioned, I put all my gym stuff in my friend's house. Yeah. So now I got Swiss track flooring in, at, in their garage, too. <laughs> my gym. <laughs> we all fancy over here yeah yeah all fancy <laughs> that's so rad so a lot of companies will do the celebrity endorsement but at the end of the day if someone tells you like or if your waiter you come up and you're eating somewhere and your waiter's like yeah everything's great here but don't get the lasagna are you gonna order the lasagna no no because it's a personal recommendation so it goes it's this is all about trust and who you're trusting right and having um having the ability to go okay well how much more research do i have to do for something when i've got two people saying don't do it that i know and trust right well, I should probably redo my research and really kind of take feeling out of it, emotion out of it, get the factual information, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, uh, they kind of, they kind of have that whole thing of like how, um, the companies will have their, how, like, we're going to, we're going to make it a better way of marketing if we use a celebrity. So they have their, or how they're going to do it but their why of selling their product is not there anymore you can only get so far with a celebrity right it goes into the whole five groups of 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 who you have like the innovators the the early what is it the early adapters the early majority late majority and the laggers right there's the five groups of society and everybody falls into something, right? You have like the very low percentage, which is an innovator, which, you know, either has the idea or helps make innovative ideas. And then you have the next percentage, which is an early adapter. They don't care how much money it costs to buy the Tesla when the Tesla first came out. They're an early adapter. They don't care about the iWatch that came out, the iWatch one that came out. They're an early adapter. They don't care if they have to wait in line for three days at Best Buy to get the Xbox game that came out. Because for an Xbox kid or a PlayStation kid, they're an early adapter for a video game, right? Or you have maybe, what's your wife an early adapter on? <sighs> Reading. So the books, right? Yeah. What, on are, it. what are you an early adapter on? 
Mm. I'll get back to you. I'm <laughs> sure. Not I'll sure. get back to you on that. Yeah. I was a early adopter of firefighter paraphernalia. So if, there's new, if there was a new axe that came out, you know, this girl's taking out the cow car to get the new axe. So <laughs> I'm not necessarily, I'm honing back on my early adapting skills. <laughs> <laughs> Because it used to be lights and flooring and everything for my shop. Okay. You know? Now it's just kind of, I'm more in like a comfortability stage of my life. I want to be. Adapter on recliner? What's that? Early adapter on getting that new recliner. Yeah. Whatever is going to make my life more comfortable, you know? So like I just plumbed AC into my garage and things like that. Yeah. Isn't that nice? AC in yeah. the garage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Changes that. I mean, so, if you dumb an AC, that means you'll have the heating system in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. How awesome is that? I know. I'm so happy. You live in extreme temperatures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a mellow summer, though. It did hit like, it was, I think it was going to hit like 118 when I was up in Seattle and I was thankful for that. Yeah. I don't, 118. Yeah. And it was supposed to hit 118. And Reading. Oh yeah. It'll hit 115 during the summer easily in Reading. Yeah. I know. I remember being in Red Bluff, having to crack my windows on my car. If not, then I come out the next day and you have the big crack. On the windshield. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm hmm Same thing with the desert. So Tivo is a great example of. Do you remember Tivo? What Tivo even is? You're talking about like the recording? Yeah. Television recording? Yeah. So this is like probably two thousand and two maybe 2000 somewhere around there because i remember buying stock in tivo like i got why they did it like i was an early adapter of tivo right like i knew why. i even bought stock i made a little bit of money i didn't sell it quick enough i sold uh, i got into jet blue instead of southwest i don't know why. anyway so bad pick on the airplane thing um so <laughs> Early adapter, right? Um, you have the TiVo people that they knew technology-wise, right? But there wasn't very many of these because all TiVo did was they wanted to go to the mid people. They wanted to go to, I'm the early majority, I'm the er lower majority, and I'm, or I'm sorry, late majority and the laggers. All these people are people that need, well, it costs $60, but I'm only willing to pay 40. So I'll wait for the price to go down. That's what the last three groups are. They're all about need versus want. And, and the laggers are like, eh, I don't really need anything right now. So I'm just not going to get it. Right. So TiVo was trying to get these people to buy TiVo. 
And I remember it was like 200 bucks or something like that, or 250 bucks when I bought my TiVo and like 250 bucks, a lot of money in 2002, right? Yeah. 2003. Um, so when I bought it, like I wanted to, because I was a firefighter, I wanted to record all my TV shows when I was at work because we were playing Halo at night, Halo games at night, Wars, <laughs> right? Um, so <laughs> we didn't have time to watch TV, right? Plus, I worked in LA area or Lake Elsinore, Riverside County, so we just we didn't have time to watch TV. But when we did, it was usually relaxing, playing a video game. So I wanted to watch my TV shows with my friends and chat about it. You know, I was young; I was in my twenties, so um, I bought a TiVo, but they marketed it to all the wrong people and they didn't give anyone why you're, you know, I knew why I wanted it because I was away from home three to four days a week. You know, everybody else, like they didn't, they just said, oh, well you can, it was so scientific on their explanation. I got it, but no one else got it. You know, if they, like Simon even said, if you like to be in control of your life and you want to fast forward through those commercials, and not have to watch them and you want something to learn what channels you or what tv shows you want to record and it records it for you before even asking then get a tivo <laughs> you know what i mean like so sounds um, magnificent really so but they ended up not doing well they did well for a little while and then they just marketed the wrong crowd so that kind of segues me into like, who are you marketing to? Who are you marketing to on your business? Are you marketing to the early adapters? Are you marketing to the innovators in your area? Are you marketing to the, the early majority? It kind of plays into like, for detailing, you, you got to figure out how you're going to market and who are you marketing to? to get your business right who's your who's your kind of if you were to think about that an early adapter early majority late majority or laggers who's your who's your big clientele base uh probably early adapters especially with ceramic coatings up here they're starting to get more popular but they they haven't been we're behind the curve more you know yeah and so like now they kind of know more about them or we'll still have to explain but a lot of a lot of those people are who I seek out you know someone that I can educate and that I can I can sell my services to I suppose um people that are in for those high ticket items you know luxury services more higher end luxury I should say early adapters yeah you want their car to look the best it can be. Yeah. And then we got, it's all about calling the, the law of diffusion, mass marketing. Um, that's what we were just going over. And that's really kind of chapter six and seven, I think kind of just um, kind of talks about and just remembering like the golden circle of why, what, and how um made a note 
we already talked about they categorically targeted the wrong marketing with TiVo. I wrote a lot of stuff about TiVo because my stocks. <laughs> you have some skin in the game. I had some skin in the game about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. A little resentful with them, huh? <laughs> you know, they could have marketed a little bit better and I would have made some more money. Yeah. Um, it was a great idea that was handled poorly. Very poorly. They still have, by definition, better technology than anyone else. Like, as of, I don't know, eight years ago, probably a little bit different now, but still better technology in my TiVo box. But I just got rid of my TiVo box like five years ago because you know, DirecTV came out with their DVR system and and all that. And I'm like, I don't need my TiVo box anymore. Yeah, see, I was always too, I grew up too poor for TiVo. But DirecTV came out and it was popping. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is what it felt like. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so, <laughs> oh. Yeah. So the next thing it goes into is in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. I had a dream speech, right? And in 1963, there's no email, there's nothing like getting 250,000 people from different areas in the U.S. to descend upon, you know, the, the capital of the U.S. in front of the Lincoln Memorial and listen to a speech if I had a dream. And the great thing about, um, about that lecture, not only was it true and so poignant to the time and era and what was going on in the US at the time, but it was also, um, he, was, he kept saying, I believe, right? Um, he kept talking about his, his feeling of it, not, he had the why down in that speech, right? And there was clarity behind everything he was saying. There was like, you didn't have any misrepresentation. I mean, obviously I wasn't born in 1963, but I think anyone in the US history um, era of, well, I don't know if, if there's still, like if that speech still goes on. I mean, I probably heard it like, eight times every year it seemed like in our U.S. history class you know growing up from grade school all the way through high school you know we were listening to it once a year in class and oh, so yeah. you had his vision down you had the clarity of his communication um, he was a great speaker very much um, not everybody likes Obama but Obama has charisma and energy right and what do you need to, to get your why across as charisma and energy? What did Martin Luther King have? He had this amazing way of speaking. And it was passion felt like every time he heard his speeches. Like, um, I'm old enough that my grandparents had it on record. Like, they actually, like, I listened to it on record with my grandfather because my grandfather bought the record of his speeches. Somebody um, 
put them on the records at some point in time. So, Damn. yeah, yeah, <laughs> I still have a record player. Thank you very much. Um, everything sounds better on vinyl. Uh, clarity of the why, the vision. He talked about his beliefs. Um, it was a more than, and it wasn't about him. He may have said, I believe, but I believe meant to a bigger, broader picture of the United States as a whole. I believe we, I believe we can do this. I believe that this can happen in society. We need to make this change, right? So um, even though he was, he was saying, I had a dream, it was more of, we have a dream. And he was trying to encompass everybody into that. And he had the why down. He wasn't put down a plan. He wasn't saying, hey, this is my why and this is how we're going to do it. He simply put down why we need to do something. And that created a whole shift in America at that time in 1963. By just sharing his beliefs, his values, um, his statement of purpose. and and at the same time, he was symbolizing the belief system of what he was saying all at once. So, and that's really why that took a hold of so well is because he just left it as a why and then let everybody else plan, you know, how they were going to do it in their own area. Um, so that's, I guess, we'll just leave it at that. It's a good segue to we got through chapter six and seven because he was probably one of the, I don't know, besides Kennedy was another great speaker. I mean, I'm getting back, like, you know, like my grandparents were big on history. So, you know, watching all the old Kennedy speeches and his charisma and energy and passion and was really amazing. Right. And then you had Barack Obama was probably our next one of our generation. I'm in my late 40s, so I'll be 49 this year in a couple months. But Barack Obama was that guy for my generation, of an amazing speaker. I'm trying to think of anyone who could top Barack Obama. Um, Ashley Judd did a great job. People don't know that she went to the Women's March in Washington, D.C., but she had an amazing speech on why. Um, and I saw her in person when I flew out to Washington, D.C. for that. And so there's there's people out there that have great charisma, energy, and why. Um, Brene Brown is an amazing storyteller. Um, yeah, I think some of the authors that we have now and the way that we can watch them on YouTube, um, Simon Solnack, obviously, and then uh, Brene Brown, which is the book that we're going to be doing next with Gifts of Imperfection. That woman is probably one of my most favorite storytellers, not um, someone who gives speeches about energy and charisma. She, her storytelling can inspir inspire you to just want to be a better human within yourself because it's all about self-development um yeah so we'll we'll leave it at that do you have anything to add any good speakers that you can remember 
Herschel Walker was a pretty good speaker. He came to my base once. What? Yeah. No way. Yeah. Pretty cool, dude. Yeah. He talked about like uh, depression and like his grind and mental illness and stuff, but pretty good speaker. Yeah. He's full of life. Yeah, he's definitely energetic. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Herschel Walker. I haven't heard that name in years. Yeah. He's yeah. he's pretty cool. He's a cool dude too. Yeah. Holy cow. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't I'm trying to think of now. Would you say speakers are kind of different things these days? Or are you just talking about speeches? Speakers. Because when you when you really sit down and um Draco Willinglink is is another. I would call him a speaker. He has a lot of books, right? So but that's Jocko, where I was going. Jocko is like, man, that guy. Like, if I'm having a bad day in the morning and I don't want to be motivated, I just literally just turn a podcast on. Yeah. If I'm not motivated or I want to throw my phone when I hear him talking, that means I need to be somewhere inward. And so I'll listen to Brene Brown. I'll listen to uh, Glennon Doyle, Untamed, like something. Or I'll listen to uh, Abby Wambach's book. Like, so I have these go-to books. I've I've heard them over again, or I'll listen to their podcast. Or um, I think these people in today's society, we have some amazing people that that are great storytellers and some of them are amazing speakers. So I think a storyteller is different than a speaker. A speaker um, inspires you and has that charisma and they can pick up a lecture at any point in time. They have that ability to walk into a room and they weren't even there to talk. I'm blanking on this guy. Oh, Jordan Peterson. You ever heard anything from Jordan Peterson? yes he has a book out jordan peterson right that one uh, yeah yeah uh, he's a he's a amazing speaker yeah he's Pick- he's on the list. he's a little bit lower on the list but that i've never heard him speak oh you need to look he's pick a subject my my stepdaughter does uh wait no jordan peterson are you talking is that the guy from wall street jordan peterson no that's the guy from can Canada. Canada's Jordan. No, I have that book. I have uh my stepdaughter. There's what is the name of that book? Um Sarah gave me that that name. Do you need to order this book right now? And she would she would, she would shoot little pictures of certain things in the book and, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna get the book. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read his book, but his podcasts and like his uh, TED talks and things like they're they're pretty legit. Yeah, they're pretty on point. It's hard I mean, to argue with them. I'm gonna have to get on there. I think that uh, with Facebook Live, there's a lot of Facebook people out there doing stuff. Um, but when you talk about consistency. And the ability um, to have that charisma and, and hold something um, for inspiration, Jocko Willing Lake, Barack Obama, 
Um, Brene Brown does it in a different way. She's she's written so much and as a researcher, it's kind of just bubbles up out of her. Um, but Jocko could probably take any subject at any point in time and give you an amazing lecture on it at, yeah. Yeah, Jocko's one of those guys. Mel Robbins is pretty good. Oh, Mel Robbins is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is it? The five second rule or what? Yeah. And, yeah. The five second rule and, um, how, like when you're going to go high five yourself, have you, yeah. I haven't read, I haven't read that one, but I've, I've jumped into her book pretty heavy. And then like a bunch of her online things I looked at I listened, my wife. Yeah. I've listened to her book for sure. Mel Robbins is pretty rad. And and she goes into the psychology, like actually how the brain works a little bit more, which is really nice because it helps people understand like myself, I got to know how the brain works so I can understand what you're talking about when you say the limbic brain or when you talk yeah. about you know, the frontal cortex. I want to know all that so I can understand my feelings. <laughs> and like you were saying earlier about like, you know, about Jocko and, and things like I have certain people I listen to to feel a certain way you know, to get me in a certain mood. Like Jocko is one of those people, David Goggins. Oh, and then yeah. I have Mel Robbins. I have, you know, other more mellow people that kind of center me and might be more what I need at that moment. Because sometimes I'll throw on one of those things and I'm like, I don't want to listen to this shit right now. Yeah. And, it, and it's really about inspiration for your day because unfortunately the world is is what it is right now. I didn't need this in my 30s and like not even 10 years ago right but there's so much negativity that's like kind of put in and into the world that sometimes you kind of need to be like okay um or like my my ex-wife would listen to the radio in the morning or she would do something there was some like negative energy like spewing out of that radio and I'm just like I'd have to put my earbuds in or, um, you know, there was something that was spewing that was just not conducive to my morning time coffee. I mean, I spent 20 years waking up at five o'clock in the morning before everybody else or four 30 in the morning, making the first pot of coffee and sipping it in the recliner where no one else was. I just had my peaceful time, watch the sunrise. And that's the, all the inspiration I needed for my day. Right. Now you get out into society and it's a different world of there's no more me living in a bubble in a fire station. Right. And you got to have your inspiration somehow because the world does kind of come in a little bit on you and you got to go, oh, my gosh. Um, this is a really bad mindset. And a lot of times you can get yourself out of it. But if you can't, it's OK to have that crutch because that crutch is there. To go, yep, this is why I need to listen to it, right? This is why I need to have this. And it that's why we're doing these books. That's why we're yeah. having love, right? To educate each other, to have each other's experiences and be like, I can learn from you, you can learn from me, or we'll learn from this guy or this gal. And and we share books because that's what's gonna make us a better human being, to have outputs in the world, to have outputs to our children. Because at the end of the day, it's not about just you. 
yeah, it's about making yourself better, but why are you making yourself better? Most of us have children or most of us just want to be a better human, right? Or we want to be better at business or we want to be better at, you know, taking care of our dogs. Or I think one of my challenge was to myself that I was going to spend more time with my dog. Who says that? <laughs> you know, like I was only walking my dog one time a day for like two miles. Is that good? Yes. Like it's more than a lot of people, but does she deserve more than just her two mile walk and then me petting her throughout the day? Right. Yes. Right. So I try to take her, like I take her on details. So now there's clients that want her to come. So I have certain clients, if I don't bring my dog, they're just like, where's Bailey? And they're just like, uh, because they want their morning time with my dog while I start doing my setup. And then she comes over and hangs out with me, but they get their morning time with Bailey. And it's hilarious because if I do not bring her and she goes to dog daycare that day, they are just like, they are off their game. Like, so now if I don't bring her and she's like at dog daycare, I have to text them the day before. Just so you know, um, Bailey went to dog daycare with to go play with her friends. She needed some time with her friends. At dog <laughs> Socialize and be a social dog, you know? Um, so I don't know. It's a, uh, it's, it's interesting on how life transitions and what you need to do to bring yourself up. Right. We talk about that offline. And actually, yeah. I'm offline, so I wanted to ask you a question anyway. So thank you for joining into the Not Any Special Podcast. We'll be back with probably the rest of the book because it's part four and we could um, get through that in an hour on the next session. So thank you for being my special guest, Ryan. I'm going to stop the recording as soon as I put my glasses back on and I can see my Zoom. <laughs> stop the recording.